It's the 365 Days of Astronomy podcast, coming in 3, 2, 1. All right, we are live, just in case you felt like you needed to say really inappropriate things. Um, Everybody say hello to us uh, before we begin this week's episode. And just a reminder to everybody, we have a pre-recorded interview, so we're going to do the news portion first, and then we're going to go into the pre-recorded interview. Ooh, and I forget how long my interview is. Hold on. You'll see me in a second here. Either it'll be really it's, it's long, long. Show, it's 27 really minutes, so show. let me just... It's uh, 27, wow. Yeah, so let me just... let me. Uh, so we should talk fast. <laughs> you know what? I don't think we have a lot of news, which is something that we're going to need to talk about. Kim, is that a Pluto and Sharon flush? It is. You? Look at that. <laughs> Look at that. Pluto nice. and Sharon. I decided to, I want to get the whole set eventually, um, but I started with this one because it's two for one, you know. Yeah. And they're magnetic. <laughs> and they're friends. They're, yeah, they're magnetic. They go together. Oh, are they right. magnetic? Yes. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> yes. It's great. Yeah, they just sit back here. Buddies. Little celestial buddies. So uh, what are people – we were just – just before the show, we were all talking about the shows that we're watching. Um, but if people want to chime in on, on interesting things that we're watching, uh, I don't know. I was expecting to have like just a ton of free time on my hands, but but because this <laughs> this quarantine life is not that different from my regular life, and yeah. any free time that I have now is just spent sort of in an anxiety spiral. I understand. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm very thankful to still have my job. I can work from home 100. percent I have been for like the past three weeks. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, you know, it's 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 kind of the same. I, you know, I, I just like I did before, you know, sat down, have a cup of coffee, look at a couple of news stories, play some video games, talk to my friends, do a show, go to bed. I mean, I still have a nine to five job, you know, change from my night pajamas to my day pajamas. Right. Yeah. And Yeah. There you go. Uh, I'm going to say hi to a bunch of people. New coworkers. Hello to Andrew Planet, Andy Cowley, Ben Kalo, Bob Moeller, Brexit Denier, Colin Edwards, David Fairweather, Eric Schneider, Ian Farkeron, Johnny J, K Spence 303, Larry Beckham, Miguel Angel Romero, Nancy Graziano, Paranor, Roger Haskin, Scott Bragdon, Sergio Botero, Sergusi, and Susie Murph. Hey, everybody. Um, I don't actually have day pajamas. <laughs> no. No. No, you just stick with your night pajamas the whole time? Hey, no, I have real clothes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I'm wearing a collared shirt right now. Come on. Yeah. Look at that. I, uh, no, no, I'm, I'm, it literally, I mean, again, apart from the racking grief that I feel, um, it feels very normal to me. It's very weird. It's very surreal, especially when you like walk outside and it's just like the weather is nice and it's very quiet. There's a lot more people walking around outside, like where I live, which is really kind of bad for me because I have a foster dog who's super aggressive towards other dogs. And now everybody is oh. also yeah. walking their dogs. So we have like very short walks. But people are at least like taking advantage of the, the nice weather and getting outside that way. But I mean, is everybody staying two meters apart like they should? 
They are. Ex- well, I assume that the people that live together are like right next to each other, but yeah. usually you see people take wide berths yeah, around good. each other. Okay. So that's, yeah. 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 We've got, uh, oh man, what have we got? Eight, 8,500 cases in Canada now. Wow. Yeah. So all of Canada though, right? All of Canada. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we have a hundred deaths. So it's, you know, it's not anywhere near as bad on, as the U S which is, I mean, I just feel so We're sad. We're not doing so great no, over here. No, I feel so sad all the time. And like I said, um, someone, uh, you know, I, I definitely feel just this, you know, this just formless anxiety and grief that you then just like turn into work. So I am very thankful. My flowers and my garden are starting to bloom. So it actually gives me an excuse to go outside and do things. Yep. Plus it's just like a nice little spot of happiness amidst all of this yeah. stuff. Yeah, I know it's, it's, it's just, it's been just beautiful outside and, <laughs> yeah. and it's weird. Cause you do forget, very, you totally forget. You're like, Oh, you know, I'm trapped inside my house, but you're not actually like, it's not like there's poison gas outside that you can't breathe. You can go outside different kind of apocalypse yeah 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 it's oh man it's the weirdest thing and again you know it's been a hundred years since human society has experienced this to this level ah <sighs> so let us move into Crazy. the actual show put you all away again there's me okay got my intro and here we go Hello and welcome to the Weekly Space Hangout for Wednesday, April 1st, 2020. I'm Fraser Kane, publisher of Universe Today. This week, we're going to be talking about Voyager 2 found another new thing about Uranus, and it's hilarious. Um, and a new CubeSat mission to explore the sun announced. There's all kinds of interesting uh, space conjunctions and NASA's DART mission and the powerful ion engine that it's going to be flying with. Joining me today, I've got on my screen right now, Dr. Kimberly Cartier. Kimberly. Hey, Fraser. Happy podcast day. Happy podcast day. We're already self-isolated. <laughs> yes. We've always been on Weekly Space Hangout. Yeah. That's Once again, yeah, we were, we're so ahead of the curve. Many we, years of practice. Yeah, we started implementing our, our pandemic plan uh, with the very beginning of the show. So... We're pros. <laughs> exactly. We've got, uh, oh, let's see, uh, Pam Hoffman. Pam, welcome back. Hi, thank you. That's some good mute control. you got to talk louder. Because right now it's still oh, just sure. showing Kimberly. Sure, no problem. There we go. Where And where are you located again? You're in California, right? Southern California, somewhat close to Los Angeles. Yeah, so same thing. You've got just incredibly beautiful weather there right now. Yes, and clearer. It's clearer because... Because the pollution's gone. That's lovely. It's nice. It's yeah, really nice. that's really wonderful. Um, sort of a brief break until the place catches on fire. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and we've got Michael Roderick. Michael. Hi. Thanks and, for having and, me back. And where are you again? Uh, Central Pennsylvania. So we're not on fire. No, but you did just lock down. Like just we did. Like yes. today, right? Oh, wow. I think our county was on lockdown for a few days before the entire state. Uh, oh, okay. Down. Yeah, and the lockdown just happened today. So it's been two weeks here. So yeah, yeah. Almost I mean, three. almost three. Yeah, you're still in the shelter in place in all of California. Yeah. Yeah. No, we're we're a lot more loosey goosey here in Canada. Um, you know, just like 
stay apart. Don't leave your house much. Don't go to school. We, we might trust be you. Smarter. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, you know, I, I would yeah. prefer if things were a little more enforced, but we'll see what happens. All right. So before we get on to uh, the news portion, I just want to take a second and, of course, give a big thanks to uh, all our good friends at the Weekly Space Hangout crew. They are our friends, they are our executive producers, especially now during this time and we have all of these guests these astronomers and astronauts and they're all trapped at home and they all know how to use zoom that we it is just like uh the the perfect environment for us to bring on guests and they are working overtime to help bring on all of these great guests so a huge thank you of course and if you want to be a part of this community go to wshcrew.space they will hook you up you can be an executive producer too and you can help organize more of these guests as we move through into the uh into the summer season so Let's get on with the news. And there is a interview portion. It's it's long. So uh, we got about 20 minutes of news, and then we're going to shift over to the interview. All right. Pam, you're on my screen. What do you got? All righty. Well, thanks very much, Frazier. You know, I like to talk about stuff you can do, especially right where you are, especially now. We've got a couple of conjunctions coming up. And I would love to encourage people to start thinking about Comet Atlas. Uh, April 3rd is a big day because Mercury and Neptune are in conjunction. This is early in the morning before sunrise. And then we have a double feature, Venus and the Pleiades in the evening in the west. And Venus will be coming right through the Pleiades. Sounds amazing. Can't yeah. wait to see that. I can see some, I can't wait to see some pictures of Venus right in the middle of the, of the cluster. It's going to be really neat. Wow. And Venus is so bright. It's yeah, amazing. it's going to be hard to get to manage the the brightness of the two objects in in the photographs. Yeah, it, it will. So let's uh, talk a bit about Atlas. Um, is this it? Is this the the naked eye comet that that we deserve? Oh gosh, we deserve one so bad. <laughs> like hail Bob? What, like well, how long has it been? I mean, we just keep bringing this up, and I keep hoping. Yeah, nineteen ninety seven was hail Bob, and it kind of was good, um, but not great. And, you know, what I'm looking for is something to see in the daytime. And they're talking about this one being a possible daytime at five. Yeah. Now, the other possibility Hmm. is because coming so close to the sun, it could just break apart. Right. And And we saw that with Ison years ago. Uh, okay, I don't remember, but yeah. Yeah, that's Comet Ison was about, I feel like it was like back in 2012-ish, and it was everyone was just gearing up that this was going to be it. This was our Comet of the Century, going really close to the sun, so it would b- flare up significantly, okay. and it, you know, it flew too close to the sun. Yeah, we hear that a lot. There is one more conjunction on April the 6th. Jupiter and Pluto are in conjunction. Um, that's going to be in the morning, too. And what I really love about these pairings is that one's really bright, which helps you find the other one. Um, right. So, and so yeah. just for people who aren't familiar, what is a conjunction? Yeah. So a conjunction is kind of the closest approach of two celestial bodies. It could be the moon and a planet. It could be two planets. We've had three planets. There's something really great coming in December. Yes. Hopefully to talk about that. But yeah, visually, and it's very much based on your perspective because they could be, in fact, quite far apart, but we can see them as they're close together from our perspective. Um, but yeah, so if you want to get up early in the morning and look for the bright ones, that's Jupiter and Mercury in these two cases, uh, Friday 
then Monday. And then that helps you like kind of a guidepost mm-hmm. to find the dimmer ones, um, which will be uh, Neptune and Pluto. And you're probably going to need a telescope uh, for that. That was my next question was just like, what kind of gear am I going to need? Like with Venus and Pleiades, obviously I'll watch Venus. You can see both with the unaided eye. Yeah. So that's easy. Right. But with, with Comet Atlas, if it, turns naked eye then hooray um yeah. with um and with these other conjunctions with mercury you can see that with the unneeded eye yes and same thing with with uh jupiter jupiter right right and what i really love too with these both the moon is going to be well set before sunrise sometimes we get a moon in mm. there too. but the moon's 10 days old on friday and 13 days on monday and they'll both be set Right. I I just saw it today as I was I was out for a walk and I could see that it's a it's a quarter moon right now. Yes, and, first quarter. Yeah, and so we'll see it as the sun goes down for a couple of hours and then it will set afterwards as well. So that'll give you a pretty good sense of what you're gonna see on the night of the of the third, like on yeah, and as far as observing goes, back to the, the, the atlas and, of course, anything dim, you're, you, you're going to want some kind of telescope. But I was reading just before this that uh, some amateurs have been seeing the uh, common atlas with their binoculars. So a lot yeah. of people have binoculars. That's why I like to yeah. talk about that. Cause they, and they're really great for things like globular clusters. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, yeah I've got a pair. I've brought on many occasions. I've got a, uh, I've got a set of uh, 15 by 70s which are very cool. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Almost a little too heavy, but they're, but they're really great. You just sort of fall into the sky. I really like it. Well, thanks, yeah. Pam. Uh, stand or a, a tripod will help with that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. Let's, uh, let's move on. Kimberly, what have you got for us? I've got some new discoveries from a really, really old mission. Um, because Voyager two is the gift that keeps on giving. Uh, and in this case, um, a brand new discovery about Uranus, which mm-hmm. is, one of my favorite planets because ice giants are the best. Um, so basically, back when Voyager 2 flew by Uranus, still the only spacecraft to do that, by the way. Hint, hint. Hint, NASA. hint, hint. Hint, it's hint. World strong. space community. Hint, hint. Um, it, uh, Voyager 2 has a magnetometer. And as it was flying by Uranus, it took many measurements of Uranus's magnetic field, which Uranus's magnetic field is very, very strange. Um, I think we know that Uranus is sort of fell over on its side, um, but its magnetic field didn't quite fall as much as the planet itself. Um, Uranus is tilted at about 94 degrees, uh, but its magnetic field is only at 60 degrees, uh, which means that as the planet rotates, the magnetic field wobbles around a lot. It's very weird. We don't quite understand why. Uh, and it's a little bit misshapen too. So our best measurements of the magnetic field come from Voyager 2. And a couple of astronomers were trying to um, design uh, another magnetometer for maybe eventually when we go back to Uranus, what what sorts of measurements do we need and how do we need to improve? So they were going back through this old Voyager data and noticed a little 60-second blip out of 45 hours of flyby data. Literally 60 seconds yeah. of the data um, and went, huh, that looks familiar. We've seen that before. Uh, and it's a phenomenon known as a plasmoid, which is a fun word. It's a new word that I learned. Um, basically, what that means is that the magnetic field of Uranus 
slowly siphoned off a little bit of Uranus's atmosphere. And then it created a little bubble supported by the magnetic field. And the bubble got pinched off and floated off into space uh, and is filled with ions uh, of Uranus's atmosphere. And that's what Voyager flew through. And it has a very distinctive signature uh, when observed with a magnetometer. You're not so farted, did you? (laughs) I am not. You noticed I did not say any of those words. I said it. You yeah. said it, not me. Yeah, um, no, we, but we, I mean, we've, there's we've no this. shortage wow. of jokes. That I didn't people can say make. It. people are imagining them. Go ahead, I'm just sure people are. fill your do mind it. with probes and gas and Uranus I'll sit here. and things letting off into space. I'll just sit here and wait. Yep. You keep going. Yep. Please <laughs> continue with the science <laughs> and everybody else. Well, you know, Fraser, we've seen these plasmoids on other planets that don't have as funny of names. <laughs> yeah, okay? yeah. Yeah. Um, plenty of other planets do this, but we weren't expecting to see something like this at Uranus, uh, either back then or now. Um, we thought perhaps that Uranus just had traditional atmospheric escape mechanisms where lighter atoms go towards the top of the atmosphere, reach escape velocity, and just sort of blip away into space. It happens to every planet. Um, but plasmoids were a new thing that we didn't know Uranus had. Um, and now it gives us sort of a better idea of, of maybe how Uranus has evolved uh, over the past four and a half billion years. Um, basically, because we didn't expect plasmoids, we didn't know how to calculate for them or account for them in how the planet evolved. But now there's, we estimate maybe like 15 to 30 percent of atmosphere of Uranus's atmospheric loss may have been from plasmoids, hmm. um, which is pretty neat. Uh, and the only way we'll really be able to pin that down is to go back yeah uranus right which right. i feel like half of my stories about ice giants are just yeah. like let's go back yeah i, um, I know the exact thing uh which is it, still it's shameful how little these two enormous planets yeah. in the solar system have been explored which is yeah. once briefly which i will tell you when nasa announced its finalists for the next discovery class mission i literally ran around the office going oh my god there's a nice giant mission there i'm so happy yeah. well i mean not only really that did. but they had a couple of venus ones as well so and like, the venus like ones two and venus like missions and ice giant now yeah i'm all in I'm so all i have in. a three out of four chance of being really happy with their choice <laughs> yeah, exactly the other one so is this because too. the is it because the magnetic field is tilted differently in relation to the rotational axis or we're not entirely why? sure okay. um again because this is only one one measurement out of you know we don't really have any other measurements to go for but this is like the one measurement we have um but it's possible that given that the planet is rotating at one angle and the magnetic field is at you know 34 degrees off of that hmm. there may be a little bit more um sort of force that could pull off atmosphere a little bit easier maybe to create plasmoids maybe Hmm. um but this is like purely speculation at that point because we really only have this one um plasmoid to work with so we need more to figure out why really interesting and we will be watching for them right because we've seen one now we've seen one um we're not going to be able to see it remotely um, because the signal is very faint so you sort of have to fly through it with a sensitive instrument um it's not visible in um in like optical light or an x-ray light. Um, and the radio signal probably would be too faint for us to see uh, remotely um, at this distance. Our, our zone is asking in, in the chat, is it like a coronal mass ejection? Sort of a similar situation where the magnetic field is, is um, sort of 
twirling a chunk of the of the gas off of the planet. I my understanding of it is that it's more gentle a process than a coronal mass ejection, which is more like the magnetic field snapping and mm-hmm. releasing a jet of particles, whereas this is more of a, a gentle inflation of a bubble and then it pinches off and floats away. <laughs> right. Is my understanding is of it. it. Is this a good object for like the James Webb Space Telescope to to try and look for? Or is this going to be way out there? I am unsure if it okay. emits any sort of light. I mean, Voyager sort of only saw it because they flew. Could. It only saw it because yeah. they flew through I'm, it. I'm unsure, but I would. Okay. Probably say no. Very cool. Okay. Michael. still neat, I think. Tell us what you got. All right. So there is going to be a mission launching in hopefully about a year where we're going to intentionally crash a spacecraft into an asteroid. So how many people here have seen Armageddon? (laughs) Hopefully everybody. I I admit, yeah, I've seen it. All right. So the plot in Armageddon is you're going to – you're going to – Save the Earth by blowing up this asteroid. You're essentially just going to put a nuke on it and blow it up. That's not very realistic if we actually want to save the Earth from an asteroid. So there's kind of two main ways that we can do it. One is that if you have a... Uh-oh. Did he freeze up? Yeah, he froze up. Uh-oh. I wonder if he can hear us still. Um, well, while we wait for him to return, Kimberly, why don't we shift back to your story? Sure. Uh, sure. Oh wait! Oh, oh, he oh he's back. Okay. You guys. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, you sort of uh, <laughs> had a glitch in the matrix for a second there. Please continue. All right. So redirecting stuff. Yeah. Not doing Armageddon. Right. So not blowing stuff up. So uh, you can either move the asteroid using the mass of the spacecraft to gravitationally pull it, or you can just hit it with a spacecraft, and the impact of that spacecraft is going to nudge this asteroid out of orbit and so it'll miss the earth so that's the plan for this mission it's going to um, launch in july 2021 it's supposed to hit uh, it's actually a moonlet so an asteroid that's orbiting another asteroid and it's going to hit this thing and they're going to look for a very very small deviation in the orbital speed of this moonlet about 0.4 millimeters a second so very 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 small uh, change in speed. The idea then is that we're going to test this to see, is this a successful way to save the Earth from future asteroids? And so if this works, then we'll know that this is kind of the way to go. Right. Oh. So what what's the advantage of uh, hitting the moonlet instead of the main asteroid? Uh, it's easier to see the effect. <laughs> So the moonlet is much smaller, much less massive, um, and since it's orbiting some other object, you can measure the orbits of that moonlet easier than you could with some massive asteroid. I, one of the things that I think is is pretty exciting about this mission is they're going to be using a new kind of ion engine, an, an incredibly powerful ion engine. Right, and so even uh, so, you've probably heard of ion engines for a while. It's been in Star Trek a lot of. Uh, space lore and the idea with these ion engines is you take some elements in this case you're using xenon and you essentially make it an ion you hit it it loses an electron it becomes positive and you have some kind of um, electrical gate at the end of the engine nozzle and it gets pulled towards that gate and it gets flung out of the spacecraft and so it uses that as thrust um, as momentum to push it forward 
And so this, um, this engine, it has a thrust of about 236 millinewtons, which is tiny. You look at the, the thrust of the Saturn V rocket, that was 35 million newtons. And so this is very, very small. So the reason why we even want to use an ion engine is because they're very efficient. So chemical rockets, you know, you got to use all this mass to boost your rocket up. Well, what you can do that, you got to launch it to get into space. But once you're in space, it's much more efficient to just use these ion engines. And so this is, you know, paving the way forward for future missions uh, to use these similar kinds of, uh, of engines. Yeah, and these ion engines have been used, you know, we saw it on the Dawn mission. We saw it on the Hayabusa mission. The, these are a very common engine now that have been right. in operation for upwards of 20 years in various, in various missions. The key with this one, though, is it is the mightiest of the ion engines, I always, I always find it's always described, you know, that that in, the the strength you feel from an ion engine is like holding a piece of paper on your hand, right? And so this is like holding a couple of pieces of paper on your hand. That's the force <laughs> that it's exhibiting. But of course, the key is that you just run the thing for days, weeks, months, continuously, yeah. and the acceleration builds up over time. Exactly. Yeah, very exciting. I'm. Uh, it's it's funny that. You know, we know that that astro- an asteroid impact, you know, as we are here facing an existential threat today, there are many. And we are happen to be facing a global pandemic today, but we could face a, an asteroid impact in the future. And, and yet we don't know what is an effective way to try and push an asteroid off, off course. And so to actually have a to someone to actually just go and find out, try one and see what happens is, is tremendous progress. It's remarkable uh, foresight. Yeah, it really is. uh, (laughs) (laughs) We'll see if we can actually do something with the information that we get. Yeah. So we don't need to just rely on what Bruce Willis tells us. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) Thank God. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Kimberly, you got one more story for us. Yes, they do. Speaking of cool missions that will launch in the somewhat near future, um, a new one that I just learned about today is called the Sunrise Mission, which was just selected by NASA earlier this week. Um, It stands for Sun Radio Interferometer Space Experiment because every NASA name has to stand for something. They need to have Uh, a a, uh, backronym. A really cool acronym, yes. Yeah. Acronym, backronym, whatever. Yeah, well, the backronym Um, is when you start with the acronym and then you go and then you work out the words. They will never tell us which is which. Yeah. So <laughs> I'll just assume that it was planned that way. Um, but what's really cool about this mission, I think, is that it's actually a set of six CubeSats that will fly in tandem and coordinate to make a larger radio telescope. Uh, so that's the whole technique behind interferometry. It's something we do on the ground. And it's a, basically a technique of, of taking smaller telescopes and arranging them in such a way that when you observe the same thing at the same time, it has the same effect as if you had a really, really large telescope. So you get a much higher resolution Mm -hmm. for a much cheaper cost, a cheaper launch, um, and cheaper development, which is sort of the the idea behind um, what's called these missions of opportunity from NASA. Um, Basically, it piggybacks on some other launch, uh, and you get a mission to, in this case, study large solar storms. And, like, the budget is absolute shoestring. You're looking at... Their, Pretty tiny. Yeah, 62 and a half million for six spacecraft to launch and study yep. and act as an interferometer, which, 
Are there any other space-based interferometers ever? Not to my knowledge. Not that I know. Though Lisa, it's possible. That's that's well, Lisa's that's only one, thing. though, right? So Lisa, no others have been launched yet. They just did the Lisa Pathfinder, but but I don't know of another actual it's functioning interferometer. Not a flying one that I know yeah. of. Yeah. Um, maybe there is that I haven't heard of. Yeah, I'm sure someone um, can drop, drop in the chat if they know one. But so that's exciting to just have an cool. interferometer yeah. working. And and they're going to be doing radio measurements of large solar storms. Um, looking, and they're going to be mapping in 3D the shape of like large particle ejections from the sun, and mapping how the magnetic field extends from the sun further out towards Earth, which yeah. is something that hasn't been done before. Uh, but it's something that could really help. Um, NASA highlighted how it can protect astronauts going to the moon mm-hmm. and Mars, as NASA does. Uh, but it can also do things like help us uh, predict satellite um, uh, interference with our satellites around Earth, our GPS, um, and and other satellites around Earth. And um, once it once those solar storms like interact with uh, our atmosphere or the moon, it'll help us understand those effects a bit better too. I, I mean, it's such great timing, right? You've got all these other missions that are off to examine the sun, plus you've got the, the Inouye yeah. telescope here on Earth. And so you've got all of this advanced new missions to study the sun. And now you've got another one, which is which is great. Yeah. So, And it's for much cheaper. It's going to piggyback yeah. on a launch that's already going. Yeah. Um, and it's going to, uh, it's predicted to launch in 2023. So really fast Good development turnaround. as well. Right on. Yeah. Uh, Great. All right. Well, uh, Kimberly, you're on my screen. Uh, Why don't you let people know what you're working on and where they can find out more before we shift over into the uh, into the interview this week? Cool. Well, people can always find out more uh, on Twitter at Astro Kim Cartier and all of my work is published at ES.org. Recently, I've been in sort of carbon mode, um, finding all sorts of interesting um, new ways that or new science about how carbon goes from deep in the earth out into the atmosphere and how we can get it back out again. I just, did you see the, there was like a press release that came out like yesterday or today about carbon early on in the earth's formation was in the core of the earth was deep down. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. New estimates of the carbon content of earth's core, Mm -hmm. which is still pretty tiny, but it's an important number to know for just knowing just how much carbon we have. And that it, Um, and that it in the early formation, it started out, Closer yeah. to the core and found its way out, which is pretty interesting. Well, I'm not writing about that, but maybe I will just, in the future. I just uh, I, I learned a story. very cool, I know it's very not my cool job. carbon capture and sequestration method um, using basalts in Iceland, which is very neat. That's right on. Yeah, it was awesome. It, it's funny, like uh, the world is appreciating kind of a little less pollution, a little less diesel, a little less noise. It's kind of nice. I hope we should keep that. Yeah. I hope as we come out the other side of this, we, some of the, the stuff that we're doing sticks. I know that like my grocery store, it, it does online ordering. And before I was talking to the, when I picked up my groceries today, um, the guy was saying, yeah, we had 15 people. Now we're hiring 50 more to catch up with the amount of orders that we're getting. And I'm sure that once we get out the other side of this and, and we're all so comfortable where we, where our refrigerator just tells us how much more food we need and automatically orders and we just go to the store and we just, you know, someone fills our, the trunk of our car and we just drive home. They're not going to want to stop doing that. So here's hoping we have less of a carbon load anyway. Here's hoping. Pam. Yeah. Hi. Where, hi. where can people find out more? Show us the book. 
There it is. Yes, and I'm actually developing a way to get the book to people for free. So stay tuned for that. Can you bring that closer to the camera so I can see the title? Yes, yes, yes. Itty Bitty. Awesome. Amazing Itty Bitty Explore Space Now book. I love it. Perfect for you, Kimberly. This shows you how to do all that stuff. Yeah, I don't know how to do any of that stuff, so thanks. <laughs> and I have lots of free time and just, a telescope. Just remember, space is that way. Yep. I'll thanks. drop a link in so after, helpful. after the video's up. And I started something recently. It's uh, Facebook Lives. Every day I'm getting on and, you know, telling people how they what they can do today, that kind of thing, the conjunctions. Are That's fantastic. Days. Yeah, don't you really find good. that's incredibly good for your ability to be a science communicator? Yeah, yeah, much less nervous today, for example. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I can, I could just tell that the practice and, and it's, uh, it was hu- nothing changed my ability to to communicate in the moment than doing this stuff live. So, thank you very much. Yeah, looking forward to it. Right on, Michael. So I am on uh, Twitter at Michael Roderick. Uh, right now, I'm kind of stuck at home. No astronomy on tap sessions going on. So it's kind of just uh, sitting around doing work. I do want to show off one project that I've been working on. This is a model Saturn V. Wow. So this is a 3D printed, and then I've been painting it. So this is how I've been doing my free time. So wow. That's, that's pretty cool. So cool. That's it's a lot bigger than I thought it'd be. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess it's as big as you scale the CAD software to be, right? It is, yes. And I underestimated <laughs> the size. Like it, it comes in sectional pieces. And so I thought, oh, yeah, just make it as big as possible. We put them all together. It's like over one to one scale. <laughs> Could you yeah. do astronomy on tap online? This would be a great time to figure that out. We've been thinking about that. I don't know that we have enough of an audience that we could uh well the nerd night people are doing it, so you know. <laughs> Yeah, we'll, we'll, I'll, I'll discuss it. If, yeah. if you guys need any help figuring out the technology side of it, just let me know. Sure. Uh, so uh, over on uh, my website or on on my YouTube channel, uh, I had a live stream with uh, Matt O'Dowd from PBS Space Time, and that was a lot of fun. He is hunkered down uh, right in the middle of a hot zone in New York City, so uh, he was definitely <laughs> recording from his home. Um, but if you want to watch that, that's on my channel. Uh, and I have... Coming up on Monday, I've got uh, Brian Keating is returning. He is, of course, he was the principal investigator for the BICEP2 uh, telescope. And uh, we're going to talk about uh, what else is happening now that uh, he still didn't win his Nobel Prize and the search for primordial gravitational waves. So stick around for that on Monday. All right. Well, I'm going to say goodbye to my co-hosts, but... Don't go anywhere because we have an absolutely fascinating uh, interview, which you're going to want to watch. So thanks, Razor. Everybody say goodbye. See you later. And we will shift to the interview. Bye. Thanks, guys. All right. Here we go. I'm like, I'm wearing like exactly the same thing, even though we recorded this interview like a week and a half ago. Incredible. All right. Here we go. All right, joining us today, we've got Robert Hayes from uh, North Carolina State University. Uh, Rob, thank you so much for coming on the Weekly Space Hangout. My pleasure. Uh, so who are you? What do you do? So uh, I teach uh, nuclear engineering at North Carolina State University. We now have a new uh, minor in health physics. Uh, just submitted the paperwork to also have a graduate certificate in health physics, which is actually the discipline of radiological protection. So we study 
how to protect, uh, how to characterize, assess, and mitigate uh, the effects of ionizing radiation, whether that's from external exposure where you're doing dosimetry uh, versus internal where you're looking for characterizing uh, radiological content in the air, aerosols, radioaerosols, things of that nature, uh, or just uh, assaying things that somebody might eat or drink right. uh, using standard uh, radiation detection uh, scenarios. Uh, but uh, uh, one of these recent things that we've done was uh, we did a little bit of uh, research and some shielding concepts. Yeah, and I definitely want to talk to you ab- about that. But I think that, you know, like just the general topic is of dramatic, great interest to people who are fascinated about space exploration because the levels of radiation exposure out there in space, once you get out of the Earth's protective magnetosphere, even when you fly on an airplane, um, they get higher and higher the close, the farther away you get from our protective planet. What are the sort of the different kinds of radiation risks that, that we need to think about when we're, say, performing some kind of deep space flight, like, say, going to the moon? So uh, going to the moon, you basically, uh, once you leave the, the atmosphere, then you're subject to the solar wind. And that has a, uh, uh, a, a dependence on where you are uh, relative to the Earth's poles. Uh, that's where you get the aurora borealis is the solar wind coming down the, the magnetic field lines. And so uh, outside of that solar wind, which you're going to have from here to the moon, you also have uh, cosmic ray particles. Uh, the cosmic ray particles are very different. They're very, very different. Uh, the solar wind is mainly protons mm-hmm. uh, being accelerated from the sun and impinging on the atmosphere. Uh, but with cosmic ray particles, you can have things all the way up to iron <laughs> where you have highly, highly ionized nuclei that are very energetic that can um, literally punch a hole through the shell of a, of a spacecraft and uh, punch a hole through you. Right. Um, but it's at the atomic level, so it's not something you could feel or uh, you would be able to tell if, it's, if you've uh, had these occur. You actually need instrumentation to see that. Uh, possibly the exception is if it goes through your eye. That's what I was about to some... say. Yeah, I heard. I, I recall um, uh, astronauts saying that if you close your eyes, you can see the cosmic rays hitting your, uh, uh, hitting your, um, you know, your various optic nerve, and that feels feels a little unnerving. <laughs> they do get irradiated up there yeah they do for sure and then of course there's also the trap radiation that is swirling around the earth through the van allen belts and and things like that sure so if you were to sort of describe i mean i think you already sort of got there but if you were really to describe the sort of the levels of the threat how would you rank them you know trapped radiation solar wind cosmic rays which one is the you know put them in order of scariness so the the worst is going to be the the cosmic ray particles in terms of dose per event um because that's it's got something that's called a a very high linear energy transfer so the amount of energy that's deposited per unit length that it travels is going to be the highest uh but it actually because you only have uh you have a relatively fewer number of those uh it doesn't necessarily give you the highest dose depending on where you are so if i'm in a if i'm taking a a flight say from china to england over the poles i'm going to get a a substantially measurable dose because i'm going through that that solar wind the 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 northern lights i'm going to be up in that area um whereas if i'm in deep space it's it's at a lower dose rate 
but per event, that's a higher per event. It's just you have fewer events. Right. So there's a play that you have between the two. Uh, if I'm spending a lot of time in deep space, depending on where I'm at, one can be more than the other. And I mean, you get the situation where you can have really powerful solar storms deliver years worth of cosmic rays dose in an hour if the storm sure. is is bad enough, if your timing is bad. So I guess it's one is kind of inevitable, like time just slowly catching up with you. And then the other one is, is you know, could be bad luck if you happen to be out in space. Both, I guess, you know, are, are trouble. Um, now, you know, I mean, you talk about the kinds of like, you know, when we're down here on Earth and we're worried about, say, a nuclear reactor exploding and releasing particles and we think about radiation, how is that kind of radiation and sort of the risks associated with that different from the kinds of, of exposure in space? Because, you know, here on Earth, I'm kind of imagining particles that are that stick around in my body and 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 do damage while out in space it's sort of you know it's sort of like these these one-time exposures that i don't have to worry about any kind of long you know it's not like it's trapped in the spaceship with me all right so i think that was maybe a 20 second question and it's going to take about a three minute answer oh good okay that that's fine that's right because i mean the point is is like i think that you know when we think about space flight you know, we do imagine this radiation, but a lot of people, I don't, you know, they don't see it as sort of, or they don't understand the difference really between that and say, you know, the risks we're worried about here on, here on earth from, so that's okay if it's a three minute answer. Okay. So what we do in our discipline for radiation safety is we have this thing, it's called an equivalent dose. It's where we normalize the dose in terms of risk. And when you do that, there are a number of factors that you have to take into consideration there. One of those is actually something I already brought up, a linear energy transfer. Something that has a high linear energy transfer has a higher dose weight when you come up and and calculate this equivalent dose. Something that's just simple like gammas or betas, just simple electrons, those are going to have the lowest weighting factor because in terms of the amount of damage, tissue damage that you do per energy deposited is going to be different between the two. Right. And so you have these weighting factors for these different types of radiation. Uh, you also have a dose rate uh, factor that takes place. So if you get a big acute dose, like from the atomic bomb survivors, uh, that gives you a certain uh, radiogenic cancer risk later in life. But if you get it spread out over a long period of time, uh, it's substantially reduced. Right. Your body is able to basically repair itself right. uh, if, it's, if it's spread out instead of having a bunch of uh, having an acute exposure. Then on top of that, you have... Uh, 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 specific tissue weighting factors so that the lens of the eye has a different sensitivity than the skin, than the muscle, than the bone, than the, than the, than the, the uh, uh, bone marrow. All of these have different sensitivities to radiation. Basically, it's a function of how complicated it is and how fast those cells reproduce. So like the, uh, the, your digestive tract where you're continually digesting it, uh, those are reproducing themselves very fast. Mm-hmm. And so they're going to be more sensitive than cortical bone, which doesn't reproduce itself very fast. So that's less sensitive versus bone marrow, where you're producing red blood cells on a regular basis. And so those are very sensitive. So all of these things get weighted together to come up with an equivalent dose. Right. And so once you weighted those together, then that equivalent dose is how you would be able to calculate risk. For example, uh, if, if you wanted to look at cancer risk, uh, it's about uh, uh, on the order of about 5% per sievert or per 100 rem. 
So if you get an acute dose of a Siebert or 100 rem, your normal lifetime cancer risk of about 40% would now go up to about 45% if right. you got a big dose like that. Yeah. Now, that's a really, really big dose. The dose that they're looking for, I think where you're, what you might be thinking about is the Mars trip, where they're looking at getting it, say, uh, say a quarter of that. So that's, that quarter of that is your lifetime uh, a dose from the, uh, from the Mars trip, but then that might raise your probability of cancer by a percent or two. Right. Um, but then that becomes rather irrelevant because if they're doing a, it, well, I, I say that in the sense that most people don't care because, uh, I know a lot of people would do a one-way trip, you know? right. but if you're doing a one-way trip and you've got a 1% increase in cancer from the radiation right. dose, I don't think you're worried about the dose. <laughs> well, there's also the po- the problem that Mars doesn't have any magnetosphere. So as soon as you get out, you know, get out of your spacecraft and you know, and you're on the surface, the the clock continues to run. But yes, if you're unshielded, absolutely. Yeah. Um. So then, I mean, so then, what are the mechanisms that are the best protection for radiation in space? Oh, that's a great question. So, so it's going to depend on um, uh, what you're looking at. So if, for example, if you're doing a Mars trip with nuclear rockets, then you've got the shielding from the nuclear reactor, is right. what telling you, right? If you're looking at just the, um, uh, the cosmic rays, then the issue that you have there is that based on a cost-weight ratio, your, your craft is largely going to be aluminum, which means it's got a low Z, a low atomic number, and so a low atomic number is not very good at shielding high LET particles like cosmic rays. But it's, it, but it's better at, at, at lower um, energy particles like things coming from the sun and things like that? Um, it, is there sort yes. of a, a, like, a, like a place where it works really well and then starts to, to you know, not work so well, right? So... It's not so much that the aluminum wasn't chosen as much for the shielding properties as it was for the, the, the cost, uh, uh, the strength per weight right. that you can get. Um, and so if you're looking at like a beta particle, it's great. It's fantastic for just an, uh, just an electron. For the photons, not so much. For neutrons, not again. For the protons, it would work pretty good. But it, again, it's going to depend on how much energy you have. Right. So a typical solar wind isn't going to be too much of a problem. But if I have some that are uh, that are relativistic from, say, cosmic ray particles that are relativistic, they're just going to go straight through the, the entire crack. Right, right. So it's going to be a function of that energy. So LET is part of it, but also the energy, because the LET is also a function of energy. Right. Um, right. And so then, I mean, you know, you talk about, we talk about aluminum and, and other things, but at the end of the day, isn't it just protons? Like, we're just trying to get as many protons between us and and whatever is coming our way? You could, you could look at it that way. Um, what ends up happening is that the protons, if you're shielding the protons uh, from the solar wind, then you're, you're going to be getting rid of most of it because you don't really want to shield for the cosmic rays. It's just not practical to do that. That's just something you've got to eat. <laughs> if you're going to be in space, it's the, the, the amount of weight you would have to have to get effective shielding for that is just going to be prohibited to lift it up into outer space. Well, let's say, you know, SpaceX is launching the Starship and they're just blasting big blocks of lead into space. Like how much, how much shielding would you want to actually effectively block cosmic rays? If you want no exposure whatsoever, how much are you looking at? 
no exposure whatsoever. So <laughs> pretty much, you know, like earth level exposure. Earth level exposure. Oh, I, I, I'd actually have to do that calculation. I wouldn't be able to do that off the top of my head. Uh, my feel, my initial feeling would be that um, uh, you're 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 not doing proper risk management if you're looking at it in that perspective. Right. There's a, a certain amount of risk you get from radiation, but the biggest risk is really that you know that you don't make it back or that you lose air or right. I mean, those are the biggest risks. Right. And so you need to do a risk management approach where you're looking at all risks into the uh in total and then ma- and then lower them all together right right so uh i mean one option that i've heard quite a bit that a lot of people like you know maybe in the far future as we get better in in harvesting resources out of space is to use things like water that mm-hmm. that water works well as a yes. radiation shield you know, yes it would surround your spacecraft in a block of ice and you know, if it's the water that you have to use anyway, which you have to use anyway, yeah, drink. But I, and so you know, you just require. I've I've heard it's you know, like a meter, is you know, it's good. Yeah, that'd be good. Yeah, you know, just <laughs> just surround the Orion capsule in a straight meter of 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 water. All right, so you and your team have have worked on some ideas to try and you know. Not in case perhaps a spacecraft in in meters of of lead, but instead a uh, a way to sort of shave down the the weight profile and volume. Uh, so can you talk about the the research that you did? Yeah. So what we actually focused on was not the problem of, sh- of shielding for the the astronaut per se. It was making sure that the astronaut or uh, a satellite or some other piece of electronics would be able to survive uh, a large radiation field. So, for example, if, if you had, for example, uh, a solar flare event, um, and let's say that you got a big massive dose, uh, again, the cancer is only 10 or 20 years out. Um, if an astronaut, say they got uh, a full 100 rem, then as long as they made it through the acute radiation syndrome and they survive, which they'd have a reasonable chance of that, then they've only increased their lifetime cancer risk of 5% over the normal 40%. Right. But if they lost their electronics... <laughs> it's over anyway. Right. It doesn't yeah. matter. It's right. all it, it, game yeah. over at that point. And well, so, we at- and so, sorry, just to clarify that, then, like the one of those acute events has has a serious chance of frying the electronics on your spacecraft. Like at a certain point, it gets pretty bad. It can. Yeah. So the, the the what I had mentioned for biological sensitivity. There's a similar rule that applies to electronics. So the more detailed that it is, if you if you understand um, a solid state theory for uh, semiconductors, uh, when you're looking at the interface where you have the depletion region for any kind of a nonlinear circuit, uh, and I start generating electron hole pairs in there, I'm going to compromise its ability, and that's what you get from just the the gamma rays. If I get a high LET particle, or even say a neutron, that can come in and start creating structural damage right. in there, just banging out I, pieces of the wires. Not the wires as much as it is the silicate, right? And the, the that's in the that uh, um, in that that, that circuit, uh, say an integrated circuit. And so if I if I compromise a few of the transistors or a few of the diodes in that circuit, yeah. Okay, might not work anymore. And unless you have a new chip to put in there, then whatever that was doing for your spacecraft is not going to do it in the same way anymore. And if it's, if it, if it dies, then again, game over. And I mean, we see this kind of an issue with say spacecraft that are sent to try and survive in the Jupiter environment. And a lot of the, a lot of the risks 
or a lot of the decisions that have been made have been to keep your spacecraft as far away from Jupiter as possible and fly by Jupiter for the minimum amount of time possible. So does this technique both sort of help with, say, trying to survive some kind of solar storm, but also being able to just kind of get closer and be around places like Jupiter for longer? It does, in the sense that really all that we did was something that was rudimentary simple. It was to provide a, more, a higher shielding worth for a lower weight. Yeah, and so talk about this, this, this idea. Okay, so if I'm going to put a, a PC board, say, on a missile uh, or rocket and send it up, then it has to go through a whole bunch of vibration and shock, right, and still be able to work. But when it, when it does do that, it has to be able to do it in an environment that may have some very strong thermal gradients. Um, and if, if that occurs, then I can get uh, from any kind of residual uh, material that's in there some deposition or evaporation. And you can get funny things on top of that, like, like whiskers, where you get these, these uh, uh, small little metallic growths on some of the metallic leads. You can't have any kind of evolution. You can't have deposition of any kind of water vapor or anything or any kind of dust. Uh, so basically, it's a long way of saying you really want to have that thing hermetically sealed. And so what we do is to hermetically seal these is you'll take the PC board when it's all assembled and it's been tested and verified, and you dip it in uh, like a, uh, an acrylic resin, like a, like a schlack or a polyethylene or mm-hmm, something mm-hmm. like that. It's actually none of those, but it's basically the same concept. Right. And now, uh, then you let it drip dry, and now it's hermetically sealed right. so that uh, nothing can get in or out or evolve yeah. on that PC board. So um, a traditional concept of a shield, a radiation shield, is where I, I, I surround something or I surround the radiation source with uh, some kind of an, an attenuator material. Now, if you just think in the, in the most basic terms, if I were to try to shield something, let's say my phone, um, and I were to put, say, a one millimeter uh, thickness uh, uh, lead shield around it, if I were to put that out at one meter and make it a spherical right. meter shell, it's going to be a lot more lead than if I put it down at 10 centimeters. And yet still that provide essentially the same amount identical of shielding. protection. Yeah. Right. But if I then took the one, the, that one millimeter of lead and I coated my phone with it, right. it's substantially less again. Right. And so uh, that's the approach that we took, is to, is to use that coating. However, uh, we couple that with uh, something that's a little, um, uh, uh, it's familiar but different. If you think of an aggregate in concrete, mm-hmm. right, the aggregate is just a bunch of rocks. Right. Or sand if I look or whatever, at a, you know, whatever you want to make your concrete with. Right. Some sand, some rocks of different sizes. So that basically it's like a brick house in that, the bricks are the rocks, but you just got a bunch of cement for fill, right? And that's how we do concrete. It's how we do brick houses. And so the idea was to do something similar with the conformal coat. That's what that layer is, the goop, the plastic goop. You do the same thing with the conformal coat, but you don't want to do that with a traditional shielding material like lead or tungsten. Um, because if I did that, then that would be conductive. And now I'm introducing into the circuitry area, uh, uh, up close and personal to the circuitry, a conductor. Yes. And that can change its inductance. It can change its capacitance. It can do some bad things unless you really design the circuit to, to handle that. Right. So in order to prevent that from happening, um, and on top of that, if we did that, if you were to put into the conformal coat actual metallic bits, the metallic bits are quite expensive. 
uh, uh, tungsten metal is very expensive. So it would be gadolinium. So it would be erbium. Any of right. These. And so these would be metals that would be non-conductive but provide shielding and be able to work with this, with this uh, resin that you're talking about. So not quite. So those metals are conductive. Okay. All of okay. those metals, okay. if I have it in the metallic form, they are conductive. Okay, okay. We, we don't want to have a conductor up close and personal to this PC board unless it's designed for that. Yeah. So rather than redesign the PC board, we do the same thing that we had with the conformal coat. It's an insulator. It's a good insulator. Well, another really good insulator is metal oxides, rust. Yeah. <laughs> and so uh, what, we, what we looked at is that we, we came up with this idea. I wonder if this would work that if we put rust in a conformal coat, that if you had it as an aggregate, if you put this conform this, this rust in there as an aggregate to get into the conformal coat, that you could get a higher shielding worth for volume, even though you're introducing a little bit of oxygen in there. The oxygen that you put with the, the rust is just displacing the, the conformal coat material anyway. So it's really not a penalty in terms of the, the mass or the volume, uh, but you still get that metal in there on top of it. But now it's conformed. So it's as thin and as close as you can get it up to that circuitry. Right. And so the metal gives you uh, a good uh, attenuation property for all of the low LET materials. The conformal coat, that gives you a good attenuation for the low Z materials, the protons and the neutrons. Because those are going to, if they interact, they have a good cross-section to interact. And they, they have a very small range as a general rule. Uh, if I get uh, a recoil event taking place, um, the the if 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 I have a a recoil, if I have a neutron, on average, a neutron that would interact with a proton in that shield will lose about half its energy per interaction. And so, what you want to do is you want to get those to rapidly get their energy down below where I am approaching the energy threshold to actually cause an interstitial. That's actually a low threshold. But the key is that does this provide better shielding than a traditional aluminum box for the same incident field? Right. And so in the, so, in the traditional method, you would have your electronics. You may seal them, but they're going to be inside an, an aluminum box and you're providing – and the box has all the dimensions, as you said, you know, you're – you know, a much larger object with a lot of empty space. And so you would envision then having your electronic parts, wrapping them in this, in this layer, and then having them unshielded beyond that point. So you're not having to use any of that additional shielding weight. Correct. Right, right. So that, I mean, you've already got a, a weight and volume penalty for the conformal coat. You've already swallowed that. Um, we put in a little bit more weight by having in this aggregate, but it gives you a much bigger bang for your buck in terms of the shielding worth. That was right. the idea, and that was um, that was what we published. And just to you know, just as we sort of wrap this up, then you found that you were able to sort of using this technique, you were able to reduce the overall weight by as much as thirty percent for the same mass, right? For the same amount of shielding, for the same amount of shielding, yeah, for the same amount of shielding protection, you could do this with thirty percent less mass. At worst case, yes. For the lower energies, it gets a lot better. But what we looked at is we looked at the like uh, we looked at neutrons and photons uh, with a uniform distribution of the photons. But for the neutrons, we looked at a prompt fission distribution. So uh, the idea is that it not only does it apply for space applications, but if you want to do nuclear hardening, we actually evaluated that as well. Right. And 
you know, if you were to sort of imagine then, I mean, I'm just imagining some future spacecraft, some mission to the moon or, or lunar base or whatever it's going to be. And as you said, you know, these are mission critical pieces of electronics. They must stay online all the time or people start gasping for air. Um, you know, how powerful of a solar storm would you see wanting to be protected against? How much shielding can you imagine people wanting to sort of put into their electronics? So uh, now I put on my engineer hat again. It yep. depends on your what your design specification is. So this would you would actually go to, say, someone from NASA, and you'd say, what is the largest credible dose that this could get and for this mission? And then they would give a dose specification. And so you would say, so I've got to have an incident radiation field that will give me that dose. Now I have to build a shield that will match that. Right. And so that would just come up with a certain thickness that you would have to come up with to, to mitigate that particular dose. But just to give us a sense, like, you know, like what is, I mean, are we talking microns? Are we talking millimeters? Are we talking, you know, like, is it a, like, a, does it feel like a bubble wrapped circuit board or does it, you know, does it look just like it, but with like a thin sheen to it? So I can't actually answer that question. But what I'll do is I'll answer a different question, and you'll tell me if it still answers that question. Sure, yeah. <laughs> so uh, without knowing what the, the specification is, what we were able to show is for any specification that you come up with, if you replace the old shielding configuration with our new shielding configuration, you get that, that, that benefit, 30% right. less mass for the same shielding work. So once you came up with what that worst case would be, so let's say you wanted something that was in a uh, an orbit uh, around the, the pole where you're going to get a massive dose, then that would have to have a higher design spec than something that was, say, uh, you know, maybe it was going out to look for some comet right. out in the, uh, the Kuiper belt or something. I don't know. <laughs> right, right, right. I'm just sort of imagining, you know, the the electronics and whether they would just be sort of this amorphous blob of rusted metal is how it would look and you couldn't even see sort of see the circuit board anymore or whether it would just be you know almost transparent the 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 coating would be so would be so light but you know obviously it depends on the spec i'll put my spec together and i'll send it to you uh for my uh for my human mission to the moon and we'll and we'll go from there rob absolutely fascinating work and you know it really shows like there are a million details that need to be worked out as humanity takes this next step into exploring and really becoming a true civilization spanning uh sort of solar system spanning civilization and it's these little details, right? There's a thousand, there's a million of them, each one that someone's got to sit down and think about and work out and engineer and build, develop prototypes and test them in space. And it's great to, you know, I really enjoy kind of the nitty gritty of the work that's being done to, to make this happen. So thank you so much for taking the time to, to share your, your work with us. And I hope that you can protect both astronauts and their electronics in, uh, in future missions. I was getting better. Uh, where can people find out more if they want to keep keep an eye on, on the work that you're doing? I, I have a website uh, at NC State. Um, what is the the? Yeah, we'll put that in. The, we'll put that in the show notes of okay. the of the show, so people can can click on that if they if they want to find out more. Okay, excellent. Well, Robert, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today here on the Weekly Space Hangout, and good luck with your research. Thanks. Bye bye. Thank you so much. Bye. You are listening to the 365 Days of Astronomy podcast.
The 365 Days of Astronomy podcast is produced by the Planetary Science Institute. Audio post-production by Richard Drum. Bandwidth donated by Libsyn.com and Wizard Media. You may reproduce and distribute this audio for non-commercial purposes. This show is made possible thanks to the generous donations of people like you. Please consider supporting our show on Patreon.com forward slash 365 Days of Astronomy and get access to bonus content. After 10 years, the 365 Days of Astronomy podcast is entering its second decade of sharing important milestones in space exploration and astronomy discoveries. Join us and share your story. Until tomorrow, goodbye.